This is Both Wonderful and Strange, the Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Chris Van Howe. On today's episode, Amelia Van Howe returns to discuss part seven and eight of Twin Peaks The Return. Both Amelia and I were super excited to have this conversation. Part eight was one of the most stunning things I've ever seen on television, and it generated quite a conversation between the two of us. Before we get to it, I just want to take a moment to talk about how thrilling it is to have spent the last 20 years of my life exploring, being interested in, learning about, researching Twin Peaks. It all started with this very simple question, who killed Laura Palmer, which was a great entrance point, a great hook. But to go from that, that small, compact story of a weird little town to what we saw in Part 8 is truly thrilling. I think that will be reflected in the conversation you're about to hear with Amelia and I, and I hope that your experience with it was just as exciting as mine was, as hers was, as it was truly a rare moment in television history. And now, here's Amelia Van Howe. I'd like to welcome back to both Wonderful and Strange, the Amelia Van Howe. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So today, you and I are going to be discussing parts seven and eight of Twin Peaks The Return, two wildly different episodes, and two yeah. very, <laughs> in, their, in their own right, both very exciting uh, pieces of television. So... Before we start, as always, how are you feeling? I I'm good. Um, you know, seven seven was more of sort of the same, and it was it was great. But uh, it totally took me by surprise, and I'm really excited to talk about it today. Yeah, me too. I uh, Sunday night was a it was a weird night, that's for sure. And uh, <laughs> it is now the Thursday after. In those four days, I still. Nothing has uh, penetrated my brain quite like Part 8 did. So we will get to that in due time. Uh, we are going to start at the beginning of Part 7. Part 7 opens on Jerry Horn, Lost in the Woods. A lot of very great, silent anxiety and panic in his eyes. And on the other end of the phone is Brother Ben. So, you know, we got a lot of Ben in this episode, which was nice. I never thought I'd, I'd say that. Uh, but Richard Bamer, who plays Ben, is is great actor and really, uh, really did some good work here. But the they are they're having a conversation. Jerry, at one point during the conversation, screams, I don't know where I am. And that's sort of where the call ends. I think it's a good start to an episode of Twin Peaks because most of the time the audience doesn't know where they are. <laughs> How appropriate. So from there, we get a lot of Twin Peaks to start at the beginning of this episode. From Jerry's sojourn, he's flipping out in the woods. We go to the 
Twin Peaks Sheriff Department and Hawk and Sheriff Frank Truman have the pages of paper that Hawk found in the bathroom stall door, and they're examining them, and our suspicions are confirmed. And, and what are they looking at, Amelia? They are looking at the missing pages from Laura's secret diary, so the diary that Harold Smith had. When someone mentions Harold Smith, what's the first thing you think of? Uh, orchids. Okay. The first thing I think of is him with the uh, the claw, like the, uh, oh, yeah. the little tiny rake, um, whatever that tool is called. Uh, yes, I always think of that and his, and his, his poor, beautiful face. Uh, we are looking over the, the pages of the diary. There is a quote from the diary, which is uh, a fire walk with me connection where Annie is, comes to Laura in a dream before Laura dies and tell her that, tells her that Goodale is in the lodge and this is all written out in the diary. And then Truman's response to this is to Hawk is just, what do you think this means? Very even, cool, explanatory. Like this was, I think this is the first time in this show where Lynch and Frost actually took a moment to do a little bit of exposition and talk about what happened in the past and how it connects to what's happening now. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Do we know if uh, Frank Truman had any connection to the Laura Palmer case when Harry was working on it? We don't from this. There's a small bit about Frank in the secret history of Twin Peaks and they talk about uh, Harry and Frank's relationship. And the one thing that we do know is that Frank was also a member of the Bookhouse Boys. Okay. So it seems likely that he would, that even though he seems, he's very much the straight man, much like Harry was in the original series, he does seem aware of the the mysticism and the weirdness at play in Twin Peaks if he was a member of the Bookhouse Boys. So we can, uh, we can, we can assume that he does. Again, this, this exchange between him and Hawk is very much, like if you got up during your favorite television show to go to the bathroom before DVRs existed and you came back and the person you're watching the show with would explain to you what happened <laughs> <laughs> and and sort of do that. So it was really, it was, it was a, both of those guys are so congenial in their mannerisms. Like they never yell, they never lose their patience so to see them have this conversation about this somewhat ridiculous plot point was really fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. Frank gets to carry on with his his scenes. He's got a lot of scenes at the top of this episode. Uh, he's got he after this conversation with Hawk, he calls Harry to follow up with you know to get some insight from Harry about what happened the night. They brought Cooper back from the lodge and whatever is going on with Harry, Harry is too sick to, to have this conversation. And Frank wisely pulls back. I thought this was a very touching scene. Uh, you know, the one-sided phone call, Robert Forster, the actor who plays Frank Truman is, is he's done this a few times in the show where he's been on the phone with Harry and it's really moving. You can, you can feel the, like the they have a brotherly love, but it's not gooey. It's not 
you know, it's it's not anything fancy. It's just very honest and real between them, which I really like. Yeah, the um, there was one line in this in this particular scene that really touched me when uh, Frank said right before he hangs up, he says, "Oh, and Harry, do me a favor and beat this thing." Um, and I just I found that a really a really moving thing to say. The line after the beat this thing is he says, "All right, brother," which is another you know a very like something you would say to somebody you're very very close with. You and I are siblings, and I've never referred to you as sister. And yet, only on this show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but like as a as a almost like a term of endearment, like I would mm-hmm. never you know I would never call you sister to you, and yet right. we're very close. So. I thought that was a very, uh, a very nice thing. We, from there, we are still in Twin Peaks. Uh, Deputy Andy is out investigating the truck that was involved in the hit and run accident with Dick Horn. His person of interest that he's talking to is is incredibly nervous about Andy's presence and tells him that he can't talk, but he will talk later, and that Andy must leave. So Andy sets a date. For them to talk later, uh, somewhat relevant. the The place he asks the guy to meet him is right at or right around where Laura Palmer fled from James's bike. The you know the last night she was alive. Sparkwood in twenty one. That's right. right. Yep. Oh. Exactly. All right. So we go back. More Frank Truman. Perfect. Uh, I want you to tell us about his conversation with doc hayward via skype and some of the some of the amazing things that happened in that scene yes um so frank is still looking for some answers as to what happened with cooper on the night that he came back from the lodge and um i believe hawk mentioned that doc hayward had seen him or excuse me doc hayward had seen him so um frank decides to call him so uh, frank gives him a call and it sounds like he's by some, like uh, the doctor's by some sort of stream or something. So he calls him up on Skype um, and his Skype handle, Doc Hayward's Skype handle was like Huckleberry, Huckleberry Doc or something I, like that. I believe it was Middlebury Doc. Middlebury. Yes. Okay. So I wonder if he went to Middlebury College in Vermont at some point or who, you know, that's where he lives now. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so he calls him up and it's like, oh man, it's, it's just the epitome of the, of the old man selfie. You know what I mean? Where like the <laughs> phone is not in the right position to see your face. So there's some, some awkward, uh, it, I mean, it was great. It, it was just, again, very touching. Uh, I think that we all have, you know, a grandparent or or someone like that in our lives who either texts us or sends us photos and sort of just is, is onto the technology, but not quite. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Yeah. Ready to jump on Skype at a moment's notice, but uh, not going to be square in the frame. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So they, they chat a little bit and, uh, the doctor says, you know, I, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, but I will never forget that night. And he says that um, he was in the hospital with, with Cooper and he was doing his rounds and he later saw Cooper sneaking out of the intensive care unit 
fully dressed. And um, Doc had no idea why he was there, but thought that maybe he had been checking on Audrey, who was in a coma after the explosion in the bank vault, uh, which is the first that we've heard of Audrey. Correct. So we, I guess we don't know if she's alive, but we know that she survived the blast, at -hmm. least. Uh, the, the, The sort of chilling implication behind that is that there is a roughly... 24 to 25 year old person named whose last name is Horn running around Twin Peaks doing bad things, you know, 20 to, you know, 25 to 26 years after Dale Cooper visited an unconscious, unconscious comatose Audrey Horn. And we know that that was bad Dale Cooper. So kind of an icky, icky path to go down for sure. Oh, I, I, I prefer to think that, um, whoever Richard's father is that it was, and I can't remember the name of the guy, but the nice like business guy that Audrey was seeing. Oh, um, uh, John Justice Wheeler. Yes. 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 I'm going to choose to, uh, you're, you're you're, you're going positive. That's right. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Some other touches I really liked in this scene. One very obvious was, was Frank's desk. Where he's got the nice, like, wooden yes. polished desk and he pulls the handle and the futuristic computer monitor comes up out of it, ready to go. The other thing that I um, that I learned in my sort of following up research on this episode is that Doc Hayward was played by, I believe the actor's name is Warren Frost. He is Mark Frost's father. Warren Frost passed away recently. So he is, you know, he's another one of the Twin Peaks alumni who was able to film a scene for the show late in his life um, and then and then passed away. So, you know, we, for examples of that, we have our um, primarily the log lady and now Warren Frost and that and footage used from Major Briggs and from Bob. So there's been a, a whole host of folks who have, you know, moved on from this world who have been able to show up in the show. Um, I thought it was very nice, especially that this episode aired on Father's Day and that, you know, Warren Frost got his scene in his son's show on Father's Day. So I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, that's wonderful. I hadn't yeah. noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're done in Twin Peaks for a little bit. We head back to Buckhorn and Lieutenant Knox has arrived to learn more about Major Briggs's fingerprints. And her first question, or she gets there and, you know, he's she's going to find out the fingerprints. And he's like, I'll show you them. And she's like, what do you mean? She's like, well, there's a body. Or, you know, she, you know the line from the, the Buckhorn detective is, there's a body, all right, which was mm-hmm. the tagline for the episode. Uh, she sees the body, no head, and she goes to report to her superior, again, played by... Um, Winston Zedmore, Ernie Hudson from... Uh, <laughs> Uh, ably played by Ernie Hudson from the Ghostbusters. And as she's on the phone with him, who appears in the background? Uh, spooky guy. Spooky um, guy. And I, I think that it was the same really terrifying guy that we're going to see in episode eight. Uh, and my reason for thinking that is that this this spooky guy um, is accompanied by the same sort of static. Yes, Great point. I did not notice that the first time. But the second time I watched it, I always watch it the second time with headphones. 
Okay. And immediately when he shows up, the static is there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, amazing pull. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so they have this conversation. They're they're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, Ernie Hudson's character has to make another call at the end of this to whomever is above him to discuss this craziness of could this be Major Briggs's body? He's twenty five years too young. He hasn't been seen in in 25 years. He, you know, no one knows what's going on with this. So, and as this is happening, it's sort of cut with Lieutenant Knox and the Buckhorn detective and the the coroner and the the dark person walks by behind them. I won't name them yet. We'll name them after episode eight. Now that they actually those characters seem to have a name, but we'll get to that in due time. Okay. Uh, cut to. Gordon Cole whistling in his office. Uh, do you know what he was whistling? It, I mean, it sounded like a, a bird song, and the beginning of the shot was on a picture of a particular bird or okay. feather. But I am no ornithologist, so I, I do not know <laughs> what what bird call he was whistling. I was wondering, with your musical background, if you had picked up some sort of melody or some sort of piece of something. So it was very pretty. Uh, uh, David Lynch is an excellent whistler. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, really good. Uh, Albert comes into the office to report about his meeting with Diane. And it's the scene is, it, it mostly just advances this idea that Diane is unwilling to talk. But there's a really kind of interesting, almost a standoff between Albert and, and Cole in this scene where... Uh, Cole asks Albert to go with him the second time. Mm-hmm. And Albert says to him, say please. And Gordon goes, what? And Albert says, you heard me. Which I thought was really interesting because mm-hmm. what we know about Cole is that he can't hear anybody. And then there's a tense silence between them and, and Cole says, please. Mm-hmm. And the next scene, they're on their way to see Diane. Uh you had some pretty excited text messages about Laura Dern's performance as Diane in this episode. So I would like you to tell us a little bit about uh, meeting Diane in Diane's home. Oh, she was fantastic. Um, so they, they show up at Diane's house and a young man lets them in and he's on his way out and he says, see you later, Diane. And Diane appears in uh, this like lovely kimono type deal with a a cup of coffee and um she's immediately immediately standoffish um and uh so cole and albert sort of seat themselves and uh my favorite line from this interaction is cole says got any coffee and she says no as she's drinking a cup of coffee and i don't have any cigarettes either and she's smoking (laughs) And um, they they talk to her. She wants nothing to do with them initially, but Cole eventually convinces her to come and see Cooper in prison. Um, yeah, Diane appears to be uh, when when they tell her that he's in prison, she just says, "Good." You know, she's uh, you know, fuck. A, appears to be her favorite word. Absolutely. Uh, 
she's great. <laughs> she she employs it with devastating effect many many times. Uh, my favorite of which we'll get to shortly. Uh, so she agrees to go with them. Now we cut to our team of crack FBI agents on the plane. Diane is there. Tammy is there. Albert and Gordon are there. So the team, you know, we're we're there, and we're all headed back to see Cooper again. We have a scene with uh, on the plane with uh, Tammy brings something to their attention. The the fingerprints, one of them appears to be reversed, and Gordon goes through this thing with her with the her fingers and which which word with that Cooper said was reversed and it corresponded to I believe it was the left ring finger. Um, I don't know what that means. Apparently, that's called the spiritual mound. Sounds like uh, David Lynch doing some weird flirting with this woman who's playing Tammy Preston through the the scene, uh, which he is known to do. Um, how, anyways, we get to the prison with all of them, and they're walking through and they're explaining what's going to happen. And Tammy chimes in, unwanted, unwarranted, to say to Diane, and we really appreciate you doing with this. And Diane's response to her is, what's your name again? And Tammy says, Tammy. And then what does Diane say? <laughs> Fuck you, Tammy. Perfect execution. <laughs> you know, one of the great all-time, like, slicing FUs in the history of television and movies. I really like what Laura Dern has done with this role in very limited screen time. Uh, she is She comes off as very, very sure of herself very intense and um, she definitely does not want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> so finally we get the, the scene Twin Peaks fans have been waiting for since our very first appearance. I mean, the first word we ever hear Cooper say is Diane. Yes. And now they are face to face though. We know she is face to face with a bad version of Cooper. They have this conversation Immediately, she knows this isn't her Cooper. She asks him a question. When was the last time we saw each other? And his answer is so menacing. Mm -hmm. This very simple, like, at your house, slowly, slowly delivered, sort of, sort of with a seedy tone to it. Her reaction is, you know, she is chilled by being across from this person, even though there's all kinds of technology and glass and, and prison between them. She knows that something is wrong. She asks him very clearly, who are you? And he says, I don't know what you mean, Diane. And that's the end of their conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty, pretty terrifying. I love Kyle McLaughlin's performance as, as bad Cooper. It is very intense and physical and, He's so relaxed. He's like a, but he's like a coiled spring. You kind of think that any moment, you know, he could he could leap forward and do something terrifying. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, absolutely fantastic. I love um, just the way that he changes his voice in between the performance of Bad Cooper and Dougie. Um, it it blows my mind that one person is is playing those two characters. He's really just doing such a phenomenal job. Yes, give that man an Emmy. <laughs> one thing we we skipped over. I wanted to cut cut back to it. They 
at one point they show a picture, the last like known picture of Cooper, and it's him outside of this like palatial estate in Rio. <laughs> There's like Havana shirt, Havana shirt on. It's like, oh, this guy knows how to party. <laughs> <laughs> he then uh, at the end of this scene, he's he's I believe he's back in his cell and he asks one of the deputies, one of the, the, the guards to deliver a message to the warden that they need to have a talk about a strawberry. So this is the second time strawberry has come up. It was Mr. Strawberry. I believe that was in part six. And now we get the, the strawberry information once again. From okay. here, we move back to Twin Peaks and Andy is waiting at Sparkwood and 21 for his rendezvous. Uh, his, his guy never shows and we get an ominous, uh, an ominous look at the the house where Andy was talking to the man initially, and the door is open at the angle that doors are only open at if something terrible is waiting for you behind those doors. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very special, special thing. Like if you ever see a door open at that angle, you're not going in, right? Yep. Like we, nope. We, Turn nope. around, run yeah. the other way. There was there was one really interesting detail in this scene, and and did you pick up on it? Did you notice uh, what kind of watch Andy was wearing? Oh, um, you know, I did not. So he he's wearing a Rolex, which is interesting. How how does a small town police officer, one who doesn't seem to be, like I, I'm I'm guessing that Andy Brennan is not a financial wizard. That that being said, he may live very frugally. He does seem like a man of simple tastes. But if he's a man of simple tastes, why does he have a, you know, several thousand dollar watch on his wrist? Mm-hmm. I, I really hope that Andy's not crooked. I I refuse to believe. Yeah. <laughs> I refuse to believe that he is. I, I believe that maybe he saved up or, or Wally in his travels, uh, his many, many travels procured yeah. a Rolex. Per- yeah, perhaps that was a gift from his son. That's a good... That's another positive call, Amelia. You're <laughs> trying to trying to keep it up today. Keep, keep it light. Keep it light. So uh, from here, we go back to the prison. Cooper is meeting the warden. We find out the the somewhat the meaning of Mister Strawberry. Uh, it has something to do with this uh, this this character named Joe McCluskey that. Apparently, the warden is involved in his untimely end or some sort of business with him. The The dog leg that we saw in Cooper's possessions has some significance. Other three, The three other legs have been sent out to his associates that if something should happen to him, they know to deliver some sort of information. So he has the warden trapped, and the warden has no choice but to give Cooper, Mr. Cooper, what he wants which is a rental car a gun in the glove compartment and freeing ray ray absolutely so they're they're gonna get out here finally after i mean we're we're probably two-thirds of the way through the episode if not more we get to go and spend some time with dougie and dougie is in his office he is doodling away he's doodled so much that he's doodled off the paper onto his blotter and tony is in the office with him and tony is really nervous tony is 
what are those files you brought to Mr. Mullins? What's going on? What tell you know, he 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 knows that that the walls are closing in on him and a administrative person comes in the office and tells Dougie that the police are here to see him. And Tony says, Oh, the police. That reminds me of a phone call I have to make (laughs) and skedaddles. So the police come in and no, is what's the order of operations? Do the police come in by themselves or is, does Janie come into the office before them? The police come in shortly before Janie. Okay. So the police come in and Janie is there. Do you know how the policemen introduced themselves? Did you pick up on that? Let's see. Uh, oh, yes. Yes. The policeman uh, holds out his badge and Dougie is immediately like, badge reaches for it. <laughs> his eyes light up. The other thing is he introduces that the lead detective introduces the three of them as the detectives Fusco. So, in the in the credits, they're all Detective Fusco, so they yes. are a they are a you know a trio of detective brothers or cousins. You know they're they're somehow they don't seem like they're particularly good detectives because immediately after Janie arrives, and then shortly thereafter, battling Bud Bushnell Mullins arrives, and they turn the interrogation around onto the detectives. And the detectives are left scrambling, and they reveal that Dougie's car has been involved in an explosion. There's multiple fatalities. The fatalities were from people who were well-known to be a thief of car, or a gang of car thieves. Uh, so we we kind of starting to pull that together a little bit. Dougie's car has been found. The thieves are there. Uh, a little bit more, just some tying up some loose ends with the Dougie story. From there, Dougie and Janie are going home. It's been a tough day for everybody. Janie had to pay off some thugs. Dougie didn't really get to touch all the badges. Oh. And as they're walking out of the office, they are confronted by a spikeless Ike the Spike. He's got a gun. And finally, Dougie sees some action. So why don't you tell us what happened in this scene? Yeah, Dougie, uh, Dougie springs into action. He karate chops Ike in the throat and sort of pins him to the ground with his hand on Ike's gun hand. And he's sort of smashing um, Ike's hand into gun. Meanwhile, Janie is um, like choking Ike or hitting him with her purse um, in some other way. But there's this interesting apparition. Uh, a part of the brain tree pops up and says uh, to Cooper, is it twist his hand off? Squeeze his hand off. Oh, yeah. yeah, squeeze <laughs> his hand off, which uh, is we, we'll see in a minute. It appears that Cooper manages to do. They sort of scrape this plasma type deal off of the gun um, after Ike... Uh, runs away gunless and the day is saved pretty pretty intense scene we've we've had these little flashes with Dougie where he sees a badge or he hears the word agent and it resonates with him and finally when confronted with something that only a trained 
law enforcement professional or you know military professional would be able to handle he he springs to action you know he uh, he moved like a cobra which is what one of the uh, the folks on the news say uh, another another interesting piece in that that news segment is it flashes to a little girl and the little girl's only sort of thing she says about like this bike is he smelled funny <laughs> and what i what i took that is did he smell like scorched engine oil because if he smells like scorched engine oil then we know that he could be an agent of the black lodge so that's very interesting yeah and uh a a black lodge point that um that i'd like to make is uh going back to the sort of weird scene on the plane with the spiritual mound i wonder if the reversal of that particular finger um on the spiritual mound indicates the reversal of your spiritual and moral compass ah. that was that was my my thought with that i don't know if that has any credence or not but so so that because Dark Cooper's moral compass and soul has been reversed. He can't, if he's speaking in in a way like that's why that's why the word was reversed when he said it, and that's why maybe when you're in the Black Lodge, agents of the Black Lodge speak in reverse. Yeah, cool. Perhaps. Yeah, that's why this show is fun. Who knows? There'll never be an answer to that question. They'll never. No one will ever definitively come out and say this is why it was. Yes. But we can all have this conversation forever, which is great. Uh, from our super exciting scene with Dougie and Janie E and Ike the Spike, we go to the Great Northern for a pretty low-key scene with Ben and his assistant Beverly and a mysterious hum. <laughs> and it was a very this was a very nice scene. Uh, it was it was very well acted by the the two actors involved, and one of the things I really like about uh, Richard Bamer's performance as Ben is that he seems to be a different kind of Ben Horn. In the in his past dalliances with lovely women, he was always sort of menacing and arrogant, and cocksure. And now in this one, like he was still flirting with her, but it was it was almost polite the way that he he was handling the interaction. Yeah, he's become, he seems to have grown into, you know, a, a responsible and sort of benevolent version of himself. Um, which I think that we saw, you know, in this series, we sort of see him swing from pole to pole initially. He's this, this terrible guy, you know, trying to get as much money as possible, uh, bribing Everyone double crossing everyone um, nearly sleeps with his own daughter, um, all of these very heinous things. And then he goes through that weird civil war phase and comes out of it wanting to do good at any cost with sort of not um, not considering the results of his actions. So in, in some cases, his desire to do good does harm, but he seems to have um swung back towards the middle but maybe the good side of the middle yes after this they're exploring the hum beverly brings up that somebody sent an old key back to the great northern ben immediately realizes this was the key from the room where cooper was shot 
And he sort of goes into this, you know, she asks, who's Dale Cooper? Beverly asks this. And he says, well, that, you know, he came here to investigate the Laura Palmer case. And she says, who's Laura Palmer? <laughs> and he says, well, it's a very long story. And it, it, it brought to mind this idea of Laura Palmer as, you know, for Ben, like he could tell, a, he could tell a really interesting side of that story beyond the, you know, she was the sweetheart of the town and she was murdered tragically by her father. Like he had a role in her corruption, you know, all of that. So every, everybody kind of reminds you that as the entire town in some way, shape or form could be implicated in her demise. Yeah, I wonder if we'll ever really hear his side of the story. Uh, the story. I sort of suspect that we won't. Yeah. From there, we get a brief look into Beverly's home life. She has a sick husband. Their relationship is tense. Uh, I will probably come back to that at some point. But again, with Frost and Lynch and the way they introduce these characters is that Beverly has probably been on the screen for five minutes of eight hours of television but yet it's very clear you know her story mm -hmm. you know you can make a you can make some educated guesses about what her life was like before her husband got sick and she wasn't working and and you know her life was easier maybe their life together was great uh you yeah, know you can absolutely. you can There's you can definitely a certain amount of of resentment um there and uh, yeah tense just like you said so from there, we return to the Roadhouse for our traditional musical interlude. There's not a live band playing this time. Instead, we are greeted to someone sweeping the floor while listening to Green Onions. Uh, one of the Renaults, I believe Jean Renault, is behind the bar after the song plays for two to three minutes. It's incredibly long. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, is this the end of the episode? Are they just going to play mm -hmm. this song for the next seven minutes? Uh, <laughs> the The phone rings, and Renault has a conversation with the person on the other end about the girls he sent as escorts to a customer of his, finding out that they're underage. He is not concerned with this whatsoever. Well, he is concerned that it will damage the reputation of the roadhouse but not the fact that he was sending underage girls to do awful things. Uh, interesting sort of another planning a flag or a, or a signpost saying like, okay, maybe we'll return to the Renault story again, somewhere down the road. He's trafficking in minors. It's a pretty awful thing. I wonder if Richard Horn is involved or perhaps red, uh, you know, now that he's in town has gotten his hooks into that kind of business as well. Mm -hmm. And the, the girls mentioned fit almost exactly um, the Laura Palmer archetype. He mentioned that they were blondes, you know, straight A students, 15 years old. So Laura was a little bit older than that, but um, how interesting that, that Lynch has sort of returned to that same archetype. Lots of doubling, lots of, lots of circling back with that guy. Mm -hmm. We then are witness Cooper's release from prison. A a fairly unremarkable scene outside of the importance of the fact that now bad Cooper is out there in the world again. 
Yeah. Which, even as a work of fiction, I went to bed that night being like, eh, well, at least <laughs> at least South Dakota's far away. Right. <laughs> you know, and then then he's probably not coming to Michigan. Probably. So I'm okay. <laughs> uh but yeah, he is in the car. He is he is in the passenger seat. Ray is driving, and they are beyond the walls. After they drive away, we the episode ends with a scene in the double R and a it's a regular night in the double R. Business is going along. Somebody comes into the double R and yells, Hey, have you guys seen Bing? And then he runs out pretty unremarkable, except for on a second viewing with a little help from the internet. Two things worth noticing. The guy who asks for Bing is Riley Lynch. Who's David Lynch's son. Oh, I saw him in the credits, but I couldn't pick out where he showed up. I think he was in the credits as Dave. Okay. It's just, you know, that asking for Bing, but, if you go back and you watch that scene, the clientele in the double R completely changes from one shot to the other. So it's all one people. It's, you know, it's all a group of people. And then the camera changes to focus on the guy yelling for Bing. And it goes back to the original shot. And no one in the original shot, except for Shelly, is in the new shot. Everybody's, you know, it's just completely different people. Oh my gosh. Which is pretty. I- I was just watching Shelly. I didn't even notice. Yeah. And Shelly's reaction, like, she looks around and she has a confused look on her face. And you just take that to me and it's like, oh, that's weird. That guy was just, you know, open the door running down the street. Right. But, yeah, kind of just an interesting little, again, who knows if it means anything. Um, <laughs> the song playing in the background is called Sleepwalk. Another thing I, I picked up on the Internet that was that was even more apparent watching the second time with headphones in is that layered very quietly under sleepwalk during the end credits is the battle of Mente piece window morals motif which is a very ominous twin peaksy thing so that sleepwalk as a song is a pretty classic song is very nice but it felt a little scary and if you're wondering why it felt scary it's because window morals song was layered underneath it very interesting i wonder if that signifies that uh Wyndham Earl will be will be joining the the cast sometime soon. Who knows? Bring it, bring everybody back. Get the gang right. back together. All right. So that was a that was part seven. I had a lot of notes. I'm putting those notes away because now it is time for us to talk about part eight. <laughs> I don't know that this will be a very long conversation. I feel like we could talk about it for fifteen minutes or two and a half hours. Depending yes. on on which way we could go, I think that I, the way that I'd like to handle it is talk a little bit about one how it made us feel and two what our interpretations of it. Uh, episode eight opens with Cooper and Ray on the run, a pretty standard jailbreak scene. Uh, not a jailbreak scene, but you know they're they're they've, they're escaping. Cooper does some magic with his cell phone to lose the trackers on their car because every he has magic technology that nobody else has. <laughs> he is the opposite of Doc Hayward when it comes to Skype. He knows exactly. He knows how everything works uh, at a level that seems almost supernatural, if not totally supernatural. He and Ray are driving on these windy roads. Flashlights being splashed over windy roads uh, is a very David Lynchian thing 
uh, these roads in particular were very swervy roads. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of like the uh, the little Chevron character that, you know, meaning that you're like on a tight turn. Um, hopefully, not not hopefully, but probably preparing us for the twists and turns to come uh, as they are driving. Ray has to take a leak. He gets out of the car and you think, all right, well, here's where Ray gets it. Why don't you tell us what happens, Amelia? Well, I think Cooper thinks that too, because Cooper takes the gun and gets out of the car. And in the car, um, Cooper again asks Ray for this information uh, for this set of numbers. And Ray says, oh, I haven't memorized. But, you know, Mr. Cooper, I think it's worth some money. Um, And so he doesn't tell Cooper this information. And so now Cooper gets out of the car and he points the gun at Ray. He says, Ray, I want that information. And um, I forget what Ray says at this point. But uh, he turns around and Cooper goes to shoot him and there are no bullets in the gun. or there's, There's something wrong with the gun and the gun does not work the way it should. And Ray... Uh, says, tricked you fucker, and shoots Cooper twice. Um, And then from this point on, it's a complete departure from anything we could relate to the real world at all. Correct. (laughs) There is, at some point in all this madness, there's an extended performance by the Nine Inch Nails Mm -hmm. at the Roadhouse, which I've never been a huge Nine Inch Nails fan. I do like the work that Trent Reznor does in scoring movies. I think the the scores to his movies are pretty interesting. I think his most well-known one was he scored The Social Network. Uh so you know and he also scored Lost Ho- Lost Highway which was a Lynch movie from the mid to late 90s. So they've had a relationship in the past. That being said, I liked the performance. I thought uh I thought it was pretty intense. Um you know, Trent Reznor is a cool looking dude and his cool jacket and sunglasses. It was, you know, it, it was interesting to see them get a get a music video in the midst of, of the show. Uh, there was some interesting lyrical things in there. Like, the, you know, the song was called like She's Gone Away. It's pretty potent imagery given the show. There's also a lyric about like digging in the earth until your fingers bleed, which we will get to shortly. There's a lot of digging, uh, <laughs> a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of horrifying digging. Um, but when Ray stands over Cooper and is going to finish him, there's a flash of light and suddenly these apparitions are all around them. And these are the men who uh, we have seen in Buckhorn. These these sort of ashen faced dark men dressed in uh you know woodsy clothes uh they surround ray and they surround the body of cooper uh quick aside cooper was shot twice much like special agent dale cooper was shot twice in the great northern twice in the abdomen i believe he was shot twice i'm pretty sure Mm -hmm. um so some more doubling there but the these apparitions stand over cooper they they dig at him. They rub his blood on his face. They do all these things in the midst of their treatment of him. You see a, what I'm going to refer to as a Bob globule come out of him. Like they sort a of bobble, like a bobule. Bob, a bobule. They sort of like <laughs> remove this, this like sack of stuff that has Bob's face on it. 
Uh, and Ray gets away in sort of the last normal scene of the episode. Ray is on the phone with Philip Jeffries, the uh, agent who was played by David Bowie in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. He says some interesting things. He's not sure if Cooper's dead because he had some help. Uh, way to bury the lead there, <laughs> One Ray. Way to say it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he also says that he saw something there that could be the key to this whole thing. So wh- whoever Ray is, whoever Philip Jeffries is, they are, they are, that sort of leads me to believe that they're players in this as well, that maybe they know about the Black Lodge. They know that Cooper is some sort of, uh, not just a incredibly talented criminal, but maybe mystical or supernatural, or or there's something about him that they know, and maybe now they've seen a key to. Uh, that scene ends with Cooper sitting up, bolt, you know, bolting upright, his dark eyes, and then cut to black. Now, before we get into what happens next, did I miss anything? Anything you want to mention about the scene with Cooper? and Ray and the apparitions. Um, only that the sort of purplish tint, it was sort of like a purple split by lightning, uh, reminded me of the purple part of the black lodge. Okay. I like that. I like that a lot. So when we fade to black, we come back to a desert landscape a, a timestamp on the screen, which we've never seen in Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks has never thought to announce when in the world it was. It's a very specific time. It's sometime in July 1945, White Sands, New Mexico. The, the testing of Trinity, the very first nuclear bomb. And we hear this countdown. And as the bomb is exploding, as the mushroom cloud is getting larger and larger, looks a lot like the evolution of the arm, the brain tree. The camera is swooping in closer and closer and closer to the mushroom cloud, and it goes right in. And from there, all hell breaks loose. (laughs) From a, a visual, a sonic perspective what the next half an hour to 40, 40 minutes are, I'm quite sure there's never been anything like it on a major American television network. Uh, the This intense discordant music starts to play. We're treated to all these crazy images. Uh, before we get to any of the concrete images, um, Amelia, you are a musician by trade, by training. I want you to tell us a little bit about the, the music in the scene. Sure. Uh, so when I first... When they first started showing the bomb scene, I was like, wow, this really reminds me of Stanley Kubrick. This really reminds me of 2001 Space Odyssey when I believe Dave, the astronaut, is sort of losing his mind and he's bombarded by all these lights and images and and music. And um, when I saw the credits, I was like, oh, of course, because the piece that was playing is uh, Christoph Penderecki's Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima which, of course, while showing the first nuclear bomb is only too appropriate. Um, but Penderecki is, is known for sort of 
doing these sound masses. Uh, so he'll have instruments all play one really high pitch and another group of instruments all play a really low pitch. Um, he's a fan of using sort of strange techniques. So he'll have uh, string players like uh, bounce the wood of their bow on the instrument or on the strings, which gives that sort of... Um, Oh, it's so hard to describe. It's sort of like that spine-chilling, almost plucked type of sound. Um, so all of this is is layered over each other. And if I could just make one shout-out to my 20th century music teacher, uh, Dr. Newman, who, when we had to learn about Penderecki and we had to identify his music on a listening test, his advice, he just said, Penderecki just sounds like bees. Uh, <laughs> so yes so that was um and i i have a really hard time listening to penderecki i mean penderecki he just like makes the his music makes the hair on my arms stand up i just i find it very spooky um extremely effective in horror films yeah this uh, is his that particular song had been used in the shining mm-hmm. in uh people under the stairs and one other, you know, one other sort of reasonably famous horror film. Uh, and then, of course, in this scene, uh, which, you know, n- not a lot of doesn't it? This scene doesn't have a ton of horror elements to it. The the music aspect sort of calms down when the horror dials up at the end. Uh, but but very, you know, like like you said, listening to him, I can't imagine listening to that piece without some sort of visual stimuli as well like it seems like to pair really well with anxious scary imagery Mm -hmm. and i think it just it ramps you up and sort of gets you um incredibly anxious for what's to come i think lynch just does an amazing job of setting the stage for all the really terrifying things that are to come in this episode by using this music and the intense visual imagery. Perfect. So we plunge into the bomb and in these scenes there are, there is static and there is like, you know, you're in just a world of fire and what seem like insects and rain falling a long way. All of these just very specific visual you're going, it's almost like you're going through the stages of something. First, you're in the bomb, then you're in static, and then you're in with the, the insects. And finally, we, we get to a point where we're at the center of it all. Um, and we see far in the distance the, what appears to be the same creature we saw in part one way back, uh, with the kids in the glass box, Tracy. Sam, mm-hmm. our, our dearly departed friends. Uh, it seems to be the same same figure that they saw. And this this figure sort of vomits out, spews out all of this stuff. There's like chunks of, you know, foamy, I don't, I don't know what to call it. Within it, there is a, a bobule. We see the bobule for the first time. Uh, <laughs> we see some things that look like eggs that it will come back to. Uh, all this is happening. And as this is, I'm I'm trying to hold it all in my head because it is so crazy. Like the chronology of it gets really, you know, it, it sort of just becomes like one very distinct 
spike to the brain. Yes. <laughs> uh, we just have this sort of repeated madness. And as all of this is happening, the the madness sort of slows and we are traveling through space in a way. And we end up back at the Purple Sea, back in this large building. It gets so large that like as we get closer and closer to it, you're, the size of it becomes apparent. We fly in through a little tiny sliver in the wall, and we end up with the giant and a, a woman sitting on the couch and an alarm going off. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to describe this scene to us, Amelia? I was uh, I was really excited to sort of see the giant in this part of the Black Lodge. I was like, oh, we get to see some of the giant's home life, you yeah. know, maybe. I like maybe. how he... He sort of <laughs> appears from behind the bell as if he was stand or the you know whatever that that shape is, he, as if he was standing there the whole time, <laughs> right? <laughs> just hanging out. Yeah, just waiting for it to sort of go for a couple of minutes before he he did anything. Um, yeah. So this this alarm is going off, and um, he sort of looks at it for a little while and then and then shuts it off. And at that point, he walks out of this sort of living room area and walks into what looks like an old-timey theater. And on the theater screen um, is the visual that we have just seen, the uh, bomb explosion. And so he's watching this. Um, and please stop me if I, if I forget anything here. Yeah, I'm- the one thing in that moment I thought, are we really just going to watch this whole scene again? Like, are we going to watch <laughs> the giant watch the scene? <laughs> and it's that that sort of happens mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, one interesting thing that that theater um, that that scene is shot in was also in Mulholland Drive. Uh, Lynch is probably probably his best film. Uh, you know, a pretty interesting scene in that theater as well. So it's a space that he likes to use. Uh, and I think it was a pretty, I mean, it's definitely a very, it was a very moody place, the black and white, the, the size of it all. Um, so, you know, good, good on David Lynch for having those good locations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then as, as the giant is watching this, um, he starts to sort of levitate and uh, horizontally levitate, and then golden—I don't know—it's like a like a sparkly, viscous something uh, begins to pour out of his head. Uh, and while this is happening, the woman in the black sequin dress uh, walks into the theater and sees him with this like litter bonanza pouring out of his head and is uh <laughs> seems to be delighted um and that glitter eventually turns into sort of a bowling ball size with Laura Palmer's face inside yes and that floats down to the woman uh, she looks at it she kisses it and then she sends it sort of upwards into this windy saxophone-looking thing that uh, spits it towards the screen. And the screen is now a map of the world. And uh, we see this globe traveling 
towards North America, perhaps in the vicinity of Washington and Twin Peaks. I don't know. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah. So that's the that's the end of the that's we'll, we'll re, I'll refer to that as the 1945 portion of this experience because time moves forward quite soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they uh, before we move on though, what what do you think? What was your interpretation of that? If you could if you could boil it down to a 30 second, what the hell happened? What did we just see? What does it mean? What is your take? So my thought uh, was that maybe it had something to do with Laura's soul and that she was never of this world and that she came from the giant's world and the Black Lodge and that her soul was sort of sent out into the world. Um, I can't square that with how the time works, but that's my best guess. The timing is weird. And and even before that, what did you what do you make of the the bomb and what happened in the inside the bomb? Do you have a do you have a do you have a read on that, like a personal opinion or uh, if you had to try to make it, if you had to try to apply a narrative to it, do you uh, what's your because there, there's all kinds of interpretations out there. And I'm curious about yours. My my only thought on this is that the Black Lodge has always been the epitome of evil. And um, I don't think that there's any doubt in anyone's mind that using nuclear weapons and using them on humans is a terrible, terrible thing. So perhaps the showing of that bomb was relating it to the Black Lodge in the sense of this is this is it. This is the epitome of evil that we're linking with this terrible, terrible place. I like it. I would, I would, I'll I'll go even further. I I believe that the, the black lodge was a separate thing out there in the world, in the universe. And that what, what I picked up or what I read was that the test of Trinity tore open the fabric between earth and the black lodge. And, you know, Cole has a picture of, a mushroom cloud, a nuclear blast on his wall in the office. So maybe he knows, maybe he knows this was the moment that this, this crazy stuff came to earth. Uh, you know, that's, that's the, the, the fabric of the world was torn asunder. The bobule was, and, and all of the evil that came out of the black lodge came to earth and we sort of did it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any read on the sort of origins of the Black Lodge that uh, from the secret history of Twin Peaks? Is that discussed at all? There, in some ways. So the 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 idea of the, that keeps coming back and back again in the secret history of Twin Peaks is it sort of starts as UFO stuff, and then it and then it comes to. Oh, this, there's always been people, there's always been entities here that are different from us, but for some reason in the mid to late 20th century, we became more aware of them and the government was aware of them. In fact, in one scene, uh, the narrator, the guy who is writing a big chunk of these, uh, the articles in this dossier about the town that's featured in the Secrets to Twin Peaks 
is hanging out with Richard Nixon and Jackie Gleason. Well, <laughs> yes. And they go to the secret military base and they see this creature there. And the creature in the book is described very much like the creature we see spew out the Bob stuff and the creature we see in the glass box. So someone out there seems to be aware of this. Um, but the there is no there's no real, you know, I think what we saw is may, my interpretation of it is that's probably the closest thing to an origin story we're going to get about mm -hmm. the Black Lodge and that the giant who I've always believed was an emissary of the White Lodge uh, or, you know, of some sort of good saw this happening and sent this, you know, this pure golden ball of stuff to Earth to counteract the the evil coming from the Black Lodge. Good enough for me. Yes, I think that's the best <laughs> we can do. So we, uh, the time jumps forward 11 years to 1956. We are treated to a egg like thing, something that we saw out of the, the spew hatching, birthing this frog cockroach housefly thing. If you went to bed afraid of Cooper, I went to bed afraid that that thing was going to wind up in my house yes. while I was sleeping. Yeah, no no windows open. Yes. Ever again. <laughs> exactly. Ever, ever again. Uh, so there's sort of two things happening. This creature is moving around. And at the same time, oh, one thing we didn't talk about during the, the bomb blast scene was this appearance of this, the, the, um, the convenience store or the gas station with the, the apparition sort of dancing around it in that halting uh, movement that we saw with Cooper and the, the woman with no face at the part of uh, part three, uh, that same sort of like staticky movement back and forth, herky jerky. We see all these, these creatures um, dancing around and, and doing their thing. And the, the building that they're in is says convenience store on it, which if you go back to the original series, Mike and Bob lived above a convenience store. Oh man. While they were, they were doing that stuff. So, so we see all these people, they were sort of birthed during this moment as well. And I kind of wonder if these are like the souls of maybe like during Trinity, there was some, some roust rastabouts, roustabouts living in the fake town that they set up the military set up to test the effects of this bomb so like maybe these are spirits like of human beings who are eradicated by this bomb maybe they're just entities of evil but they are there and in 1956 they are very tangible <laughs> so we've got the creature we've got these 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 characters running about in the credits the lead one was listed as woodsmen. So I guess we can call them the woodsmen from okay. this point going forward. And then we've got a sweet young couple having a date, uh, walking home from their date or, you know, from whatever event they were at. It's very, very nice, very sweet, handsome young boy, pretty young girl. Uh, so there's sort of three things happening simultaneously. It's their, their walk home and their walk home is filled with dread because you feel like at any moment they're going to be accosted by these creatures. The other part is the the egg frog roach fly creature Ooh. sort of moving through the sands, figuring out how to, you know, get to where it needs to go, 
which we will find out where it needs to go. And then these these woodsmen walking around. And so the first time we encounter them in their tangible form, they are crossing the street, sort of like how geese cross the street, like everybody is stopping for them. And the leader comes to the car. The leader who's, I forget the actor's name, but he plays a, like, he looked a lot like Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Yeah. And he plays like he is available for to perform as Abraham Lincoln. He comes to their car and in a staticky, menacing voice, he says to the driver, got a light? Ooh. I'm not even sure that I can do that any justice, but that's that's all he seems to be able to say. And while he's saying that, like, it doesn't see, it seems like the man and the woman in this car are trapped in his presence. Like if it's magnetic or something like time is slowed for them. They're terrified. They don't know what to do, but somehow the woman, I believe it's the woman like stomps down on the gas and gets them out of there and they swerve around one of the other woodsmen and they're, they're gone. At this point, the young couple, the boy drops the girl off at her house and she's, she's very swoony She's she's <laughs> happy to have had that experience. She doesn't like Mary. She's glad Mary's out of the picture. <laughs> uh, goes to her room. Uh, at the same time, why don't you tell tell us a little bit about where where our lead, where the woodsman ends up? So um, a couple of characters. So the girl, and then a woman in. I think it's like like Pop's Diner or something like that. Very generic, and- yeah. Right, right. And it looks like a car mechanic are all listening to the radio and this radio station. So we get a glimpse of the record um, and it's like a very old timey uh, reminiscent of, of doo-wop and this sort of very sweet. I can't remember the, the name of the record. It was the Platters, which uh, at that time featured a member of their band was named David Lynch. Oh, no way. Not the David Lynch, but a David Lynch. Right. Oh, how clever. Yeah, yeah. And so all these characters are sort of just enjoying a nice night, listening to this music. And meanwhile, the menacing woodsman is advancing on the uh, uh, on the radio studio. So he walks inside, and there's a sort of, there's a secretary there, and she says something along the lines of, oh, oh can I help you? And um, he says, got a light again. Uh, She doesn't have a light. And he grabs her head and uh, squashes her head in his hand, which is really horrifying. Yes. Uh, Oh, and and the the sounds that accompany this. It was awful. Very. This one was very hard to watch with headphones (laughs) because then it feels like it's happening to your head. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, so the woodsman then progresses past the now dead secretary to the studio itself. Um, and there's a, a man sitting in a chair, presumably the, the oh gosh, the guy on the show, the radio announcer. And the woodsman grabs his head and takes the needle off the record and then takes the microphone and starts speaking into the microphone and in this sort of chant that he repeats multiple times. Um, 
And if you, I don't have this written down, so I don't, I don't think I'll get it perfect. Do you have it? I've got it in front of me. You want to take a crack at it? Let's see. It's, this is the water and this is the well. Um, it was like into darkness or descend and drink. And the horse is the whites of the eyes. That's what I got. (laughs) So you're very close. It's, this is the water and this is the well drink full and ascend the horse is the white of the eyes and dark within yes so and yeah he's chanting this and he's chanting this and as he's chanting the folks we've seen the girl the the woman at pop steiner the mechanic they all they all collapse i don't believe maybe they're just put into like a hypnotic trance i don't believe they drop dead uh they just they they're sort of out Mm-hmm. this and the as this is happening we see the creature the frog roach fly creature coming closer and closer to the girl's room mm-hmm. and eventually flies up to her window into her room onto her bed and as it lands on her bed <laughs> her mouth opens and it climbs right in and as horrible as all that is, the worst moment was when she swallowed. Yes. Like that, that noise. And it's just like, ugh, super chilling. Um, cuts back to the radio station and the chanting is going on. And eventually the DJ's head is caved in in even more gruesome fashion than the, the woman out front. Uh, you can actually kind of see the woodsman's fingers like go in. <laughs> oh, I didn't uh, watch. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not surprised by that. Um, something interesting that I found in my research is that so after this episode aired, of course, a lot of people started googling. This is the water. This is the well, and this is the well, and and the rest of it, and it didn't show up anywhere on the internet except for this one website, which is called commercialsihate.com. and it's just like a message board where people discuss commercials and it was written into the html code of every page of the website so if you scrolled all the way down to the bottom of the page at the very bottom of the page you would see this poem this chant what and people like use like google caching and searches and found that it had been there like the earliest they were able to confirm is that it was there like 24 hours before the episode aired and maybe even like a week or two before that. Um, so it's just, it, it's, you know, there's probably, it's a neat internet mystery. There's probably an, an explanation for it. Like maybe the person who runs this site works for Showtime and was able to see this and, and just put that little, little ditty on a site to draw traffic there. Or maybe it's a prank by, you know, Lynch and, and co or, you know, some sort of viral thing. But if you go to commercialsihate.com and scroll down to the bottom of any page, you'll see the text of that poem. Wow. Pretty weird. Pretty weird. So um, that's that's really how the episode ends. Uh, the the credits, we go back to the girl and the credits are are just her face sleeping and like her sort of like being uncomfortable because she's got a frog roach monster in her. 
<laughs> and who knows what that is? Could that be the embodiment of Bob? Could it just be something terrifying for us to see? You know, I, I wonder if we will we will return to that. But um, the I think the I don't know if I sent you this, but my one of my favorite TV critics is this guy who writes for Vulture uh, Vulture. Mm-hmm. And his the first paragraph of his review for part eight was really great. His name is Matt Zoller sites. Uh, let's see if I can find it here. I had it saved somewhere on my phone. Ah, here it is. So this is the first the first paragraph of his review or recap of part eight. The eight episode eighth episode of Twin Peaks The Return is one of the greatest hours of television I've ever seen. Horrifying, horrifyingly beautiful, thought provoking, and thought annihilating. A work that owes as much to expressionistic and surreal painting, musical performance, and installation art as it does to narrative and experimental cin- cinema. So yeah, I'd say he nailed it. Yeah, one hundred percent. I, I, I wonder if we have if Lynch has any more of this up his sleeve uh, as we go forward. There is a a two week break between that episode and the new episode. They're taking the holiday weekend off, uh, so it, it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting note to leave the audience with. You know, I wonder if he's going to thin the ranks of the audience. Like if you were if you were on the fence and you weren't into what you saw in part eight there, maybe you're heading for the hills. But I'm I'm ready for more like I as uncomfortable and as as disconcerting as that episode was to watch um, the thinking about it. Like I would never have I never in my life would I have put myself in a position to watch something like that. You know, it's just not, it's, you know, I, I don't want to, no, that makes me sound close-minded. Uh, <laughs> it, it's not, it's not my usual bag, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I've seen some of Lynch's short films. I've seen some experimental film before, but that was, you know, that was a 945 on a Sunday evening sitting in my living room, <laughs> watching my favorite television show of all time. Like that's, that's a very rare and exciting thing to have happen. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a lot of people, at least on uh, my Facebook feed, people who had been sort of doubtful about the first seven episodes really all seem to love episode eight. Um, yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to see because we got some touchstones to, to things that we know, right? The references to the convenience store and Mike and Bob and and all of this and Lord, the globe, the Laura globe. Um, so I think that he will return to these things in some way. And I'm excited to see how he does that. Yeah. The, the timeline of twin peaks, like we started the show thinking like, Oh, how, how are they going to handle it? 25 years in the future. And now we have to think like, Oh, well now we have to worry about 44 years in the past as well. <laughs> so pretty, uh, pretty incredible piece of, you know, an, ex- an experience that I'll never forget. Yeah, absolutely. So I will end this episode by saying, if you've been listening along to us and uh, you would like to participate in any of this, you want to come on and, and tell your Twin Peaks stories. Uh, my plan now is to uh, hopefully do one, one part at a time so that if Amelia and I do a bit of a recap, we can have some room for some other segments and some other people's voices. I'd love to love to expand our, our audience. Um, 
If you're interested in those things, you can you can email me. My email is chris.vanhow. Vanhow is spelled V-A-N-H-O-W-E at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to give me some feedback. Uh, if you have feedback for Amelia, I think she's great. That's my feedback. Uh, <laughs> uh, let us know. I'd love to know what you think about things so far and, and uh, expand this happy little conversational community. Uh, Twin Peaks is best when discussed with others. Uh, as much as I enjoy the episodes in the moment, I find I enjoy looking back at them much more in these conversations with you, Amelia. So thank you for joining me on this crazy, wonderful, and strange journey. Thank you for having me on. Great. We'll talk to you next time. Alrighty. Bye. Before I wrap things up today, I wanted to tell a little story about my experience watching Part 8, the infamous, famous, amazing Part 8. About 45 minutes into the show, right when we meet boy and girl as, as boy is walking girl home, I've just experienced this crazy visual and sonic mind-bending experience. And now it seems like some narrative storytelling is going to begin. And right as the scene with boy and girl begin, my internet goes out and it takes me a long time to get it back up. 10 minutes. I get it back up. Five minutes goes by. Things seem to be getting weirder and weirder and weirder. And my internet goes out again. It takes me some time to get it back up. And all I could think about during this time was, did David Lynch do this to me? Did he somehow arrange for anyone who is streaming this show through Showtime's streaming service for their internet to blip out at these moments when your brain is heightened, your anxiety is high, you're curious about what's to come, but also very afraid of what you might see? I don't know. I'm sure it was just my crappy internet, but it was a very clear reminder of what an effective storyteller and mood setter David Lynch is. Again, I can't say enough about part eight, about the series as a whole. We've got a couple weeks off until the next episode. So go back, rewatch, enjoy. We'll probably never see this again. And with that, thank you for joining me on this journey, which is both wonderful and strange.
gentlemen, to evil. <laughs>